Good morning, everyone. Um, Our reading this morning is a little all over the place, so bear with me. Um, Our scripture reading today is from Proverbs, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, and chapter 26, verses 13 through 16. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power, for its uh, applicability to our lives, Lord. It isn't just some ancient book that that has nothing to do with Uh, with the everyday business of our lives. So, Lord, help us to uh, reflect on it this morning. Help us as we meditate on it, not just to understand it, but also to be able to apply it to the most intimate places of our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Many of you know that uh, for a long time, uh, I I worked predominantly with high school students. Uh, I was a high school youth pastor for a long time and uh, continue to coach uh, high school athletes uh, in cross-country. Uh, and uh, so I've, I've had a lot of experience with, with high school students for a long time, and it's always remarkable to see how much they change in four years. They arrive in high school, and in some ways they, they kind of have a little bit of a, a, a childness to them, a little bit of innocence and a little bit of naivete. And then kind of as they grow and mature, some of that really disappears. Well, a lot of it happens when they hit their, their junior year of high school, I've noticed over the years, because in their junior year of high school, they start getting asked a lot of, of different questions that they don't always know how to answer. Questions like, what are you going to do with your life now? Have you thought about that? They get asked, when are you going to get a job? When are you going to get your license? Uh, where are you going to go to school? And, and what are you going to major in? And all of a sudden, these children are now being faced with these really big questions about life. These really big questions that require a lot of wisdom. The book of Proverbs, as we've seen, is a book that is written to young people that need wisdom. It's actually written by a father to his son and has all the kind of intimate language that a father would use with his son, but it's written to a son who's at that very tender age when childhood is rapidly starting to disappear and the big questions about life start to to bubble to the surface, the big questions that require profound wisdom. Traditionally, the the book's been attributed to Solomon, though most people believe there were other contributors to the book. And Solomon was a great king in ancient history uh, who asked God profoundly for wisdom in order to, to rule 
uh, the kingdom in which he'd been given. And, and the scriptures tell us that, that other kings and rulers came from all over the ancient world just to hear Solomon in his wisdom. And if you look at the book, it's a, it's a fascinating read. The first nine chapters have these extended discourses on what wisdom is and how we pursue it. And then chapters 10 on through the end of the book, through chapter 31, have these little sayings called Proverbs, these little wisdom sayings, these nuggets of, of truth that are kind of encapsulated in everyday life illustrations that teach us uh, profound things about wisdom. But as you read the book, you see it has a very different way of, of communicating wisdom, at least very different than, than our own Western culture. Because what it does is it uses pictures in order to communicate wisdom. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but the, one of the coolest things to communicate, uh, one of the coolest ways to communicate information now are these things called infographs or infographics. I don't know if you've ever seen any of these before. But they're, they're a way to distill information in a graphic sort of way. And if you've ever seen them, it's, it's really an interesting way to communicate, to, to communicate information. And for many people, it registers for them in a different way than just bare facts does. Because many of us relate more to pictures than we do in just bare facts. So the book of Proverbs gives us pictures. It gives us beautiful pictures to help us see what wisdom is all about. And if you were with, with us last week, we saw two different pictures about wisdom. The first was that wisdom is a path. And the, the writer of Proverbs says, which path are you going to choose? Are you going to choose the path of wisdom for your life? Or are you going to choose the path of foolishness? But another illustration we saw last week is that of a woman. Are you going to choose to love Lady Wisdom? Or are you going to choose to love the woman of foolishness? This week, the pictures really continue. We're given a character sketch. A character sketch of, of a man Solomon calls the sluggard. And his, the pictures that we're given are both comedic in one sense and also tragic in another sense. So imagine this picture. That Solomon paints for us. The sluggard is someone who is addicted to sleep and to lying down, it says in chapter 6. It says in chapter 26, like a hinge on a door, the sluggard turns in his bed. Basically, the only movement he has in life is to turn in his bed. He will not start things, chapter 6. He will not finish things, chapter 19. He will not face things, chapter 26. He is a frustration to those who are around him, chapter 10. He won't cook his own meals, so he just goes without food, chapter 12. His way is like a hedge of thorns, chapter 15. Chapter 19, he's too lazy to bring the food to his mouth from his ditch. From his dish. Chapter 21, he has unfulfilled desires. Chapter 26, he makes up excuses why he can't do things. Obscured excuses, like there's a lion in the road. Uh, an animal that wasn't even in the culture of that day in which Proverbs wrote. And then he begins to believe his own excuses in chapter 26. See, there's a lot of comedic abs abs absurdity to the, the picture that Solomon is painting here. 
Yet despite all this, it tells us in, 26, in chapter 26 that the sluggard is wise in his own eyes. That he deceives himself into thinking that the path for his life, the path of the sluggard, is actually the most wise of paths. In the end, the scriptures tell us that poverty will come upon him quickly in chapter 6. And in chapter 18, that his slackness will end up being his destruction. I have to be honest, when I really started to think about this and preaching a sermon on, on laziness and the sluggard, I really started to wonder whether it really applied to our culture nowadays, especially in, in urban contexts where we live and in Western culture, we prize work and we work really, really hard in our culture. So I wondered how this really applies in our cultural concept, in our, our cultural context. And I read an article this week by a woman named Lisa Belkin. She wrote an article just a couple years ago uh, in the New York Times that talked really all about this. And she wrote that American workers, on average, spend at least 45 hours a week at work. But in many urban settings and even other contexts, the number jumps to more than 70 hours a week that people consistently spend at work. She talked about how we prize uh, efficiency and multitasking so much so that if somebody gets in our way when we're trying to multitask, we get really, really frustrated with them. And she, she talks about Frank Gilbreth, who was a master at efficiency and how he would study his own life about efficiency and got really excited when he figured out he could get four more seconds out of his life by using a different strategy in order to button his shirt. What she argues for is we live in a culture that prizes these sorts of things. So you have to wonder, does all this business that Solomon talks about, the sluggard, really apply? Sure, we can think of, of, of scenarios where we tend to be a little lazy. When I thought about it this week, I thought about a shutter that is on our house that we noticed needed to be painted two and a half years ago when we moved into the house. But because it's not in the line of sight that we see all the time, we consistently forget about the, shover, the shutter and put off painting it to another day. I also thought about my keys. My keys are a constant instance of my laziness. Instead of putting them in one consistent place every day, I lazily drop them all over the house and then waste tons of time trying to find my keys every day. So we all have little instances of laziness that, that we can credit our lives to. But does this broader concept of the sluggard or of laziness really apply to us? Well, I continued reading the article and she said this. She said, American workers on average spend 45 hours a week at work, but describes 16 of those hours as unproductive, according to a study by Microsoft. American, America Online and Salary.com in turn determined that workers actually work a total of three days a week, wasting the other two. And Steve Pavlina, whose website uh, describes him as a personal development expert and who keeps incremental logs of how he spends each day working, urging others to do the same, find that we actually work only about 1.5 hours a day. The average full-time worker doesn't even start doing real work until 11 a.m., he writes, and begins to wind down around 3.30 p.m. So as I read that, I began to think, so maybe this, this idea is a little more complex 
than I originally thought about the nature of laziness and work. You know, Proverbs and really the whole scriptures have a lot to say about this thing uh, that we call work. It's a compartment of our lives that we often don't think our faith really applies to. We have a tendency to, to say really only our faith applies to this or what we do on Sunday mornings or what we do in our private life. But really the scriptures help us to see that our faith really impacts everything about our lives, including our work. G.K. Chesterton famously wrote, You say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the concert and opera and grace before the play and pantomime and grace before I open a book and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and before I dip the pen in ink. See, what he understood is that this thing called faith has to do with every area of our lives especially the area of our work. The path of wisdom, the path of faith includes everything. So what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is just look at a few things that Proverbs tell us, tells us about this thing called work and what the scriptures tell us as well. The first thing they tell us is that we were created to work. We were created to work. Many people mistakenly read the book of Genesis and they think that, that we were created to live a life of leisure where we just kind of sit around and eat fruit and, and eat bonbons all day and just enjoy nature. But re, and we mistakenly think that work only started after sin entered the world. But if you look very carefully in the book of Genesis, you'll see that when God created Adam and Eve, after he created them, it says that he sat down and rested, but also that he gave Adam and Eve work to do in the garden. Sure, the presence of sin affected it. it. It brought in toil. It brought in frustration that came in work. But work was around before sin entered the world. God is a, a working God. Therefore, he created us in his image. So he created us to work and also to rest. A beautiful balance of work and rest just as he did in creation. So God created us to work. But he also defines for us what this thing called work is. The scriptures tell us that work is being a faithful steward or a faithful keeper of our time and our giftedness. A steward is someone who is given something that is really precious. And they're given, they're given the task or the responsibility of caring for this precious thing with all their might and with all their energy. Well, God has given each one of us time here on earth. And we all know that that time is incredibly precious. But he's not just given us time. He's given each and every person a certain measure of giftedness. There are things that God has gifted you with that he's gifted no other, else, no other person on the planet with. There's uniqueness to you and giftedness to you. And God wants you to be a good steward of that giftedness. He asks us to keep these gifts and to exercise them in a way that is pleasing to him. To spend our time, to spend our energy, our passion, and our giftedness in ways that are pleasing to him. One commentator wrote that we are to be stewards of not just our money, but of our vocational position, our expertise, our assets, our resources, 
and our opportunities. So we were created to work. God has given us our time and giftedness, and he wants us to work hard with those gifts that he has given us. But the third thing that we see is that our work, the things that he has given us to do, should be directed towards the benefit of others first, not just for ourselves. Amy Sherman, who wrote a great book on this idea of vocational stewardship, talks about a a passage that changed her life in the book of Proverbs, and it's Proverbs 11.10, which says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. You see, what she's trying to get at is that when those who think wisely about their work when those who recognize that what they have is the Lord's and they are a steward of what they have, then they seek to bless others with those things. And as a, pro- as a product or a byproduct, the city, the neighborhoods in which they are in rejoice. Think about our city. Think about our neighborhoods. Think about Baltimore. Does the city rejoice and prosper Because of the presence of God's people who are in it. Working hard for God's glory. Someone wrote that the righteous in the book of Proverbs are by definition those who are willing to disadvantage themselves for the community. While the wicked are those who put their own social, economic, and personal needs ahead of the needs of the community. Sadly, when when sin entered the world, work became turned in upon itself. No longer do we often work for the benefit of others or for the benefit of our city and neighborhoods. Instead, our inclination is purely to work entirely for our benefit, to build our own kingdoms and to establish ourselves. And because of the entrance of sin, because sin has become turned in upon itself, It is introduced into this world a restlessness that cannot be cured in this world. And Solomon picks up on that as well in the book of Proverbs. He helps us to see that the very thing that fuels unwise work or workaholic behavior is the very same thing that fuels the life of the sluggard. And that is a deep internal restlessness that we all feel. He says in chapter 21, the desires, the desires of the sluggard kill him, for his hands refuse to labor. All day long he craves and craves, but the righteous gives and does not hold back. He describes a strong desire in the sluggard, a craving that is constantly unsatisfied. For some, that restlessness translates in different ways. Some people take that restlessness, those desires, that craving, and translate it into working incessantly, working hours that are beyond what we can even imagine, that fuel workaholic uh, tendencies and habits. For others, that same restlessness bears very different fruit. It bears the fruit of laziness. You see, the root is the same, but the fruit is very different. But what the gospel tells us is the only true cure for that restlessness. The only true cure for those cravings and those desires that are at the deepest parts of our soul is a relationship with the great giver. A relationship 
with Jesus Christ. The other thing the scriptures make very clear and, very, uh, and from the very beginning is that we serve and worship a God who is a God who works. He is a working God. Genesis tells us about how he created the world and at the end he, he rested in perfect satisfaction with his work. Throughout the Bible, the, the Bible talks a lot about it. He calls more and more of his people to be engaged in this thing called work. And fast forward thousands of years after the creation of the world, God takes on skin in the form of Jesus, God's very own son. And though the Bible is largely silent about it, it tells us that for 30 years of Jesus' life, he did nothing but work as a carpenter. He spent his days molding wood and creating furniture for other people. But what the scriptures ultimately tell us is that his, his ultimate work that he came to this earth for was not to make furniture. His ultimate work was the great work of redemption. The great work of redemption in which he took on skin, in which he ministered to those in his path, healing the sick, teaching others about the kingdom of God, and then eventually sacrificing his very own life for his people. And on the third day, resurrecting from the dead. And the scriptures tell us that at the end of his great work of redemption, he sat down next to the Father in heaven because his greatest work our redemption and our rescue was accomplished. He was no lazy man. He was no sluggard, but he persevered to the very end, knowing that the very end meant his death. Why did he do it? Why did he work so hard? Why did he persevere to the end? He did it so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins. He did it so our relationship with him that was broken by sin could be restored. He did it so that you and I could be made right before the Father. He did it so that we could experience all the benefits of the kingdom of heaven. And we experience those benefits. We experience the work of his redemption not by our work, not by our ability to work really hard, but we receive it as his precious gift of grace. Because the most important thing for us to understand about this thing called work and what the scriptures say about work is that the path to life does not come through our work. The path to life does not come through our working really hard or or trying to earn God's favor back. Instead, the path of life comes from the work of Jesus Christ done on our behalf. Life comes not in resting in our own accomplishments, but in resting in His. And only in in resting in His work can that restlessness, those cravings, those desires ever truly be satisfied. So if you're here this morning and uh, you can relate to the sluggard or you can relate to the workaholic that's out there because you know that there is that internal gnawing restlessness that just can't seem to be satisfied, then flee to Christ. Embrace his work that is done for you on your behalf. Will you trust in his work for your salvation? 
Will you trust in his work to cure your restless souls? And if you're here this morning and, and you've heard this gospel message, you've responded to it before, and you've, you understand that, that that restlessness can only be satisfied in a relationship with him, then know that your time is precious and your giftedness is precious. Both those things are gifts from God that he wants you to use on his behalf, not just to love others, but also to love our city. So that maybe one day down the road, someone would even look at Baltimore and say the city rejoices because of the righteous that live in it and serve God on his behalf. 